Welcome to episode 81 of the Truth Quest podcast, the truth about the killing of Qasim Soleimani. Before we get started, I want to ask you to do me a favor and share the show. If you're on social media and topics such as the killing of Qasim Soleimani, democracies, celebrities, hate speech, or Trump derangement syndrome comes up, please share the topic-specific TruthQuest episode with your debate partner. Episodes are available on Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Podbean.com. The video version of the podcast are available on YouTube, BitChute.com, and Brighton.com. If you are listening to this on the Apple Podcast app, please take a moment and scroll down on the podcast page and give it a five-star rating. Another way you can help grow the show is to throw a small donation my way at the TruthQuest podcast patronage page. All donations will be used to drive awareness of the podcast through Facebook and Twitter advertising. See this episode's show notes page at truthquest.podbean.com. And finally, please join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash truthquestpodcast. Two weeks ago, as of this recording, the U.S. military killed a man named Qasim Soleimani outside the Baghdad airport. He was a top general in the Iranian army and the possible heir apparent to the top spot in the Iranian government. The repeated talking points from most mainstream media and government sources include the following. Soleimani is responsible for the deaths of over 600 U.S. military personnel as a mastermind of the IED, improvised explosive device, campaigns that has terrorized Iraq for years. He is responsible for the recent attack on the U.S. Embassy. He is responsible for the deaths of hundreds of Iranian protesters in 2019. He helped organize Hezbollah's efforts against Israel in the 2006 war in Lebanon. He helped prop up Syria's president, Bashar al-Assad, overseeing that devastating war, leaving more than half a million people dead. He supposedly planned a bomb attack on a restaurant in Washington, D.C., a Cafe Milano, in 2011. He supposedly planned an EMP, an electromagnetic pulse attack, in America in 2015. He was convicted in absentia in Kuwait for murder and sentenced to death related to an embassy bombing. And finally, he is responsible for the deaths of thousands of others in the region through various other nefarious actions. The other mainstream talking point, of course, is that Iran is the number one state sponsor of terrorism around the world, and all their Iranian people do in their spare time is huddle in the streets and chant death to America. To a man and woman, virtually every national Democrat and United Nations official condemned the killing for a variety of reasons, some valid, most not. The liberal media, of course, followed suit with CNN, MSNBC, New York Times, Washington Post, Huffington Post, and others bashing Trump over the killing. Oddly enough, if you review the record from 2011, very few of these very same entities, people, or outlets made similar claims when Obama ordered the killing of bin Laden. Funny how that works. The one thing that you must remember is that all of these claims come from the same government, the same intelligence community, the same military that has been lying to us for 20 years about the war in Afghanistan. Don't believe me? Look up the Washington Post expose about the Afghan papers. Many people argue that these same people lied us into the Gulf War originally. Remember weapons of mass destruction? Bush lied, people died? What about the chemical weapons attack by Assad in Syria? These same people worked that lie for seven years to justify U.S. military involvement in that country. What about Obama's involvement in Egypt? Remember Muammar Gaddafi? Remember Hillary Clinton saying, we came, we saw, he died? Hell, go back to Vietnam, the Gulf of Tonkin. What about World War I with Woodrow Wilson? World War II where FDR underhandedly coaxed the Japanese to attack? Many people believe the official story about JFK's assassination is a lie. 
The bottom line is if you believe anything the federal government tells you these days, you are nothing but a fool. And that goes for what they tell you about wretched scumbags like Soleimani. At the end of the day, the killing was likely justified. This is as far as the current Wild Wild West rules of the global war on terror goes. As Alan Dershowitz explained, Trump had more legal justification to kill Soleimani than Obama had to kill bin Laden. See, as a uniformed member of an enemy military, Soleimani was classified as an enemy combatant, which falls under the authority of the commander-in-chief. Bin Laden, on the other hand, was not a current threat to the United States, making that killing, as Dershowitz puts it, more of a revenge killing. Dershowitz went on to explain that this guy, Soleimani, orchestrated the attack on the embassy, which in and of itself is an act of war, and according to intelligence reports, which I personally no longer believe without outside verification, Soleimani was planning another attack on Americans. If true, that made him fair target for the military, according to Dershowitz. Another report surfaced that Soleimani came to Iraq to mediate peace and ease tensions between Saudi Arabia and Iran. This according to the Iraqi Prime Minister, let's just say not the most trustworthy of gents. Anyway, some suggest that explains why Soleimani was traveling so much out in the open through the Baghdad's main international hub. But what is the truth? Let's take one of the claims against this monster Soleimani and dissect it a bit. That being that he is responsible for the deaths of over 600 U.S. military personnel. What would you say if I told you that there has never been any solid evidence presented to prove that claim? No one has ever demonstrated that the bombs came from Iran. However, there are many people on the record that confirm that the EFPs explosively form penetration. Uh, these are basically... IEDs on steroids that blow through the U.S. armored Humvees and even tanks. Anyways, there's lots of proof and lots of confirmation that these devices were made in Iraqi workshops. But we've been treated to headlines like Soleimani's Quds forces saturated Iraq with EFPs. Now, did he help train and equip terrorists to build these devices? That's highly likely. But you cannot take these claims at face value. To follow the claim, you have to assume that every EFP was made and or planted by a Shia, and every Shia is Iranian, and every Iranian is associated with, trained by, and or funded by Soleimani. We're just supposed to believe the propaganda. So at the end of the day, was Soleimani a bad dude? Well, if killing and oppressing other human beings qualifies someone as being a bad dude, then I'd say he qualifies. Did Soleimani deserve to die? I suspect if you ask 100 Americans that question, 60 to 70 would answer it in the affirmative. But playing God is dangerous. Callously casting aside any human life is not something to be applauded. But given the direction of abortions performed every year, society's pendulum certainly is not swinging in the direction of life. Was killing Soleimani the right thing to do? Well, the answer is yes if deterrence and vengeance is the goal. The answer is no if you are concerned about escalation. The answer is yes if you know that the leaders in Iran only understand power and eat up weakness. The answer is yes if you think Obama's appeasement policy needed to be overturned. The answer is no if you argue that the U.S. military shouldn't even be involved in the Middle East. The answer is no if you make the point that the U.S. started this whole shitstorm by invading Iraq and refusing to leave. All of that begs the question, is the United States responsible, at least in part, for creating monsters like Soleimani? Let's answer that question with a series of questions. If a hostile force invaded and occupied Canada, Mexico, or Cuba for 20 years, do you think that would raise some concerns in the United States? What if that hostile force was the same country that aided your neighboring country in which you fought a war against? 
Do you think that would raise some concerns? Here I'm referencing to the United States aid to Saddam Hussein during the Iran-Iraq war that lasted from 1980 to 1988, a war in which Iraq invaded Iran. More on that shortly. I want to shift gears here and bring in something that is virtually always lost in these discussions, that being history. I want to look at the general history of the Middle East and then at Iran and Iraq specifically. As you listen to this, I want you to keep the killing of Soleimani at the top of your mind and see if at the end of the history lesson you feel any differently about it. So let's start with Iran. In 1953, the CIA overthrew the elected Prime Minister Mohammad Mossadegh in favor of the Shah with the last name I can't pronounce. Why did that happen? Well, because Mossadegh nationalized British oil interests in the country. You've heard of BP? That's British Petroleum. Unfortunately, the Brits lacked the ability to regain the oil fields, but they were able to enlist the assistance of the CIA. So they came up with a plan for regime change and presented it to President Truman, but he rejected it. After Eisenhower assumed office, however, he approved the plan based on the CIA's rationale that Mossadegh was leaning towards communism and the Soviet Union and therefore posed a threat to the U.S., quote, national security, end quote. I want you to remember those two words, national security, as this episode proceeds. The United States stooge, the Shah, who if you check his record as a leader, is not a gentle man to say the least. He ruled as a dictator for 26 years. Well, that was until 1979 when a popular revolution overthrew the government. What I really should say is that was until 1979 when a popular revolution overthrew the United States installed, trained, and maintained government. And the Shiite Ayatollah Khomeini came to power. This is the same time when the Iranians took 44, I think, American hostages from the American embassy. Americans, including my nine-year-old self at the time, were indignant and angry. Why would the Iranians take American hostages? They are savages. We are good. They are bad. I remember two bumper stickers stuck on a sign off of I-64 in Huntington, West Virginia, where I lived during those years. One read, quote, Iran, let our people go. And the other read, blow Iran off the map. The propaganda was just as effective in 1979 as it is in 2020. How incredible is it that we are still screwing around with Iran after all these decades? Why can't we, the United States, just mind our own damn business? So instead of a largely secular dictator, the Shah, the Iranian people ended up with a theocratic dictatorship that proved just as tyrannical as the Shah, and that still exists today. Soon after the Iranian Revolution in 1979, U.S. officials began supporting Iraqi dictator Saddam Hussein, there's that name again, in a war that he initiated against Iran. In essence, President Jimmy Carter's government gave Hussein the green light to invade Iran, a war in which the U.S. continued to support throughout the Ronald Reagan years, though it also sold weapons to the Iranian side at, the, at times. As I mentioned earlier, this brutal war lasted from 1980 to 1988. The result was the death of a half a million people. No borders changed. It just ended in a stalemate. Something else to consider is the seemingly perpetual economic sanctions on Iran, which critics claim are killing innocent Iranians. As a general rule, economic sanctions rarely hurt the regime leaders. It hurts the people in the country, which is why they are employed. The theory being that they will rise up out of their misery and revolt against the regime. But are these types of sanctions moral? What did the people of Iran do to us? Is it better to punish them or let trade flow freely, regardless of what the regime is doing? One final point that I want to make about Iran. Remember when I mentioned what it might be like to have a hostile force residing in Canada, Mexico, or Cuba? 
Well, how many U.S. military bases and personnel do you think there are surrounding Iran? Just get a number in your head. How many U.S. military bases and personnel do you think there are in the region surrounding Iran? Here's the list. Qatar, 13,000 troops. Kuwait, 13,000 troops. Jordan, 3,000 troops. Syria, right now there's about 800. Saudi Arabia, around 3,000. Iraq, give or take five, 6,000. Bahrain, 7,000. UAE, 5,000. Afghanistan, 14,000. Oman, 600. Turkey, 2,500. How would you feel if there were that many Russian or Chinese bases in Canada, Mexico, Cuba, British Columbia, or even Greenland? That's a brief history on Iran. Clearly, the United States has been heavily involved going back almost 70 years. Now, let's turn our attention to the history of Iraq. Did you know that the country of Iraq only came into existence in the 1930s? Yep. Following World War I, the Brits drew some lines on a map and declared a new country. More on that in a minute. But you got to start this discussion with the Ottoman Empire. So when people talk about the Ottoman Empire these days, they usually think about the country of Turkey, which is where for most of the reign the capital was, in Istanbul. But at its height, the empire included Greece, Bulgaria, Egypt, Hungary, Macedonia, Romania, Jordan, Palestine, Lebanon, Syria, some of Arabia, and a considerable amount of the North African coastal strip. A total of 36 sultans ruled the Ottoman Empire between 1299 and 1922. However, in 1683, the Ottoman Turks were defeated at the Battle of Vienna. This loss added to their already waning status. Over the next hundred years, the empire began to lose key regions of land. After a revolt, Greece won their independence in 1830. In 1878, the Congress of Berlin declared the independence of Romania, Serbia, and Bulgaria. During the Balkan Wars, which took place in 1912 and 1913, the Ottoman Empire lost nearly all their territory in Europe. At the start of World War I, the Ottoman Empire was already in decline, obviously. The Ottoman Turks entered the war in 1914 on the side of the Central Powers, that being Germany and Austria. And, of course, they were defeated. Under the Treaty Agreement, most Ottoman territories were divided between Britain, France, Greece, and Russia. For example, Syria was under French control. Egypt and Iran were under British control. The Ottoman Empire officially ended in 1922 when the title of Ottoman Sultan was eliminated. Turkey was declared a republic in 1923. This brings us to Iraq, which was created as part of the post-World War I final breakup of the Ottoman Empire. It was cobbled together with the Ottoman provinces of Baghdad, Basra, and Mosul, all names familiar to anyone who paid the least bit of attention to America's war in Iraq. A lot of the problems in Iraq can be attributed to the fact that these three provinces were, or are, so very, very different in many ways. One of them is primarily Shia. The Baghdad region is, was more diverse with Sunnis, Jews, and Christians. And then there's the Kurds in the north. Well, displeased with the plan, the Shiites, Sunnis, and Kurds united for the first time to revolt against British occupation, but they were unsuccessful in gaining full independence until 1932. In the decades that followed, Sunnis held political prominence, including Saddam Hussein's presidency beginning in 1979. It's at this point that Saddam befriends the U.S. and decides to wage war against Iran. Apparently not satisfied after eight brutal years of war with Iran, Iraq then invades Kuwait in 1990 in what was described as a dispute over debts from the war with Iran. This, of course, led to America's Iraq War I, a.k.a. the First Gulf War or Operation Desert Storm at the beginning of 1991. 
Of course, we returned to fight Iraq again in 2003 in Operation Iraqi Freedom over weapons of mass destruction. And as this episode demonstrates, we are still heavily involved in Iraq almost 30 years later. So exactly why did the United States feel compelled to get involved in the Iraq-Kuwait conflict? I mean, after all, Iraq did not invade the United States. Oh, unless we forget, Congress never declared war in Iraq. Didn't need to because it was a matter of national security. There's that term again. In the ensuing years, the United States destroyed Iraq's water and sewage treatment plants with the consequence of causing mass illness in the Iraqi people. The United States imposed no-fly zones over Iraq even after hostilities ended. The United States enforced sanctions on Iraq during the 1990s, even when it became clear that hundreds of thousands of Iraqi children were dying. In 1996, then-Secretary of State Madeleine Albright responded to Leslie Stahl's question regarding sanctions on Iraq and the toll it was taking on the population. Quote, We have heard that half a million children have died. I mean, that's more children than died in Hiroshima. And you know, is the price worth it? Albright's response was, quote, I think this is a very hard choice, but the price, we think the price is worth it. Are you kidding me? So the result of Operation Iraqi Freedom was the killing and injuring of hundreds of thousands of Iraqis, thousands of U.S. and coalition personnel killed and maimed, and a country left in shambles. The most recent excuse for staying in Iraq is to defeat ISIS, but there's a little problem with that since Trump has announced over and over again that we defeated ISIS in Iraq. In the wake of the killing of General Soleimani and the call for the removal of U.S. troops from Iraq, we've been told by State Department officials and the Secretary of Defense that we are not pulling troops out of the Middle East because it's our right as a force for good in the region to, to maintain, quote, appropriate force posture in the Middle East. So at this point, you may be asking, what does all this have to do with the killing of General Soleimani? Why the history lesson? Well, because it's all related. You can't take one isolated incident like this and not look at the big picture. The real question should be, what's the root cause? And I think it's fair to say that part of the root cause is the aggressive nature of America's foreign policy, i.e. being the world's policeman. When I posed the question, why are we, the United States, still over there, and I began poking around and researching the topic, I quickly realized that the real question isn't, why are we there now? It's more like, where haven't we been? Just think about Americans' military or intelligence excursions overseas. While I read this list, I want you to close your eyes and picture a map of the world as I list all the places where the U.S. has intervened. Hawaii, Cuba, Puerto Rico, Nicaragua, Honduras, Guatemala, Panama, the Korean Peninsula, the Philippines, Vietnam, Chile, Egypt, Kosovo, Somalia, the Congo. Currently, we are involved in Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, and Yemen. Not to mention the fact that we have special forces crawling all over northern and western Africa. And that doesn't include all the clandestine activities by our intelligence agencies. That is really a remarkable list. Issues like this, the killing of General Soleimani, are always more complicated than the surface attention they are given on any singular news outlet. The National Democrats have one angle depending on who is in the White House. CNN, MSNBC parrot that message. Fox News and other conservative-leaning outlets and the current White House will give you another angle. The problem, as I mentioned, with both of these perspectives is they ignore history. Or should I rephrase that? They conveniently ignore history. In this case, the killing of Soleimani overshadows the real problems. It overshadows the real history of how we got here. 
It's tough to get to the truth, but I hope after listening to this episode, you understand that the truth is rarely as simple as is generally presented by your favorite talking head, talk show host, or news outlet. And the truth about the death of Qassam Soleimani is no different. It's complicated. It's messy. It's unfortunate. And dare I say, it could have been avoided. If you're looking for an easy-to-read reference guide to have on your desk or bookshelf that covers many of the topics tackled on the TruthQuest podcast, grab a copy of my book, Critical Thinking, spelled with a P like Paul. The subtitle is The Lost Art of Critical Thinking and Common Sense in Politics and Public Policy. In it, I tackle dozens of public policy issues from abortion to American exceptionalism and the Federal Reserve, climate change, education reform, and gun control. It's available at Amazon and anywhere books are sold. See this episode's show notes page at truthquest.podbean.com for more information. And finally, please join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash truthquestpodcast. 